My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here if you're visiting with us. And this morning we're wrapping up this four-week series we've been in entitled Our Sojourn, where we've been talking about our mission and our values as a church. And so the last two weeks we talked about truth being a value, goodness being a value. This week we're going to talk about this concept and this value of beauty. And the point of the series and the point of the work we did leading up to this series was to step back and look at our history as a church and say, what has Sojourn always valued? What has always made Sojourn Sojourn? And so with truth, we've always been a church that's been grounded in God's word and believed in truth. Goodness, we've always been committed to doing good in the world and walking in goodness and holiness. And beauty, this third one, Sojourn's always placed an emphasis on creativity, on the arts, on care and concern, not just for truth and goodness, but also for beauty. And this commitment of Sojourn's has always been received, uh, it's always been kind of received in different ways by different people. It's got a mixed reception, I think is what I'm trying to say. Some people say, oh, that's because you guys want to be trendy, hip, and cool. And I'm always like, do you know me? Uh, <laughs> But there's, there's a suspicion around the idea of beauty and the concept of beauty. And some of you here today, you might, you might be skeptical of beauty being a value in the church. Isn't beauty kind of a superficial, sentimental, secondary thing? Is it really something worthy of being a value in a church? And it doesn't help that we live in an age where the whole concept of beauty has been commercialized and degraded. In our culture, beauty... Uh, has been reduced to being young, fit, rich, and glamorous. You know, it really is skin deep, and that's a very superficial concept of beauty. It's, it's not even really beauty. That's more prettiness or attractiveness, which is part of beauty, but, but beauty goes so much deeper than that. And it's, it's actually counterintuitive. People think, oh, beauty, that's kind of superficial. What you'll find is this idea and concept of beauty is, is one of the deepest and most profound ideas in the world. If you study the great thinkers and intellects throughout human history, you'll find that so many of them, after all their other studies, they end up spending most of their time on this concept of beauty. They're fascinated by it, captivated by it. Dante said that beauty is what awakens the soul to act. That why we do what we do is ultimately because of beauty. Dostoevsky went so far as to say that beauty will save the world. It's a profound statement. I believe it's true. These guys didn't see beauty as superficial. They saw it as something that sits at the very foundations of reality. They also saw it as something that gets to the very essence of what it means to be human. Because whether we, we use the term beauty or not, we all long for beauty. That, that longing for beauty, it's unique to us and it's universal to all of us. It's unique in the sense that dogs, they don't stare in awe at sunsets. Lions, when they're roaming the Serengeti, they don't look you know, with their jaws open at the beauty of the landscape. Love and appreciation for beauty is something very unique to human beings. And it's also universal. Every single one of us longs for beauty. Now, because we're wired differently, God's created us differently, we, we experience and pursue beauty through different avenues. 
You know, some of you, your idea of beauty is sitting on a beach and looking at the sun, getting sunsets over the ocean. For others of us, it's probably walking in the woods or mountains or wading through streams. Some of you, being outside at all is not that appealing. You think of the woods as mosquitoes and bugs. And for you, you seek beauty walking through art galleries and looking at great art. For others of you, it's watching films or going to shows, going to musicals, going to Broadway. For most of us, I think we pursue beauty through music. Now, it's different tastes and styles, but we all, we all I think, have something inside of us that's drawn to music. Some of you pursue beauty by watching professional sports or the Olympics. Others of us pursue beauty by great meals. We all are in pursuit. It's universal. To be human is to long, to be near, to be in the presence, to experience beauty. And the reason we all have this universal longing is because it finds its origins in God. That God is the creator and the source of all beauty. Even more than that, God is beautiful And the reason we long for beauty is because he's put that longing in us when he created us in his image. And in the text Lindsay just read for us, it's this fascinating passage to me because David, like most of his life, David's on the run. He has wicked men coming after him, trying to hurt him, pursue him, imprison him, kill him, whatever. And so he writes this song crying out to God. And he says, though an army besiege me. So there's an army coming after him. My heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And then he says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. And the commentators will say that one thing, there's a huge emphasis. He's like, one thing, only one thing. I just need one thing from you, God. What's that one thing? It's not, deliver me from my enemies. Save me from everyone that's pursuing me. Make my problems go away. It's one thing I ask that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? So that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. David saying, if I can see God's beauty, I I can endure anything. I can make it through anything. And that word translated beauty there, it's a big word in the Bible that means a lot of different things. Sometimes it means the kindness, God's kindness. Sometimes it's his loveliness or pleasantness. Sometimes it's translated as favor or delightfulness. It's a hard word to translate. And all these words kind of, they kind of help us understand what he's talking about. And that's kind of the way talking about beauty is, isn't it? Like beauty is a word you can talk around for hours, but to actually put a definition to it's really difficult. Like, I think to put a definition to beauty actually does, does disservice. Beauty is something that we, we come together over enough time and we all point to it and we're like, that's it. Well, what makes it beautiful? It's hard to put into words because it transcends words. And in the Bible, the closest synonym we have to beauty is glory. Now, glory is a word that that you're more familiar with if you're familiar with the Bible. And theologians throughout the ages have used these words pretty much synonymously, that God's glory is the radiance of his beauty. God's beauty is the radiance of his glory. Jonathan Edwards, who's probably the greatest theologian this country's ever produced, uh, and if you know anything about Edwards, you, you might have actually read him 
in school, sinners in the hands of the angry God, that's his greatest hit, you know, which is a pretty intense sermon that he once preached. But when you think about Edwards, you think of this guy who's very buttoned up, you know, stern, cold. And he said this, and his theology backs up this statement. He said, God is God and distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them, chiefly by his divine beauty. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say what makes God, God, like more than anything else is his sovereignty, his grace, his wisdom, justice, righteousness, holiness, power, whatever. He says what makes God ultimately God above everything else is his beauty. See, for Edwards, beauty, it wasn't just another attribute. It wasn't just one on a list. It was a a summary attribute. It was bringing all of the excellencies of God. So his wisdom and his power and his might, uh, his tenderness, his care, his loving kind, bringing all of it together. And when you bring it all together, all of those excellencies, excellencies the, the sum is greater than the parts. And Edward says, that's God's beauty. Think of it like this. In a, a painting, it's not isolated colors, lines, shapes, and textures that make a painting beautiful. Rather, it's how they come together. You know, you're going to have all the different colors and shapes and lines, but when you bring them together in a way that's proportionate and there's a sense of unity and diversity, that's where you find real beauty. And Edwards says, that's the beauty of God, that it's all of his perfections. Now, this is heady stuff, and some of you are like, okay, what does this all mean? Because it's easy in our conversations for beauty to, to go to the abstract, Beauty is a hard thing to put, you know, concrete experiences and flesh and blood to and for the senses. And so what we're going to do this morning, I want to look at this concept of beauty in the Bible under three headings, beauty at creation, beauty in its corruption, and then lastly, beauty in the church. Beauty at creation, its corruption, how we corrupted and how God's redeemed beauty, and then how we live it out in the church. And I want to start with creation because... What God did at creation is he took this concept of beauty that's easy for it to go to abstract, and God made it very, very concrete. If you open the Bible, the very first sentence in the Bible, what do you learn about God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing the Bible teaches us is that God is the creator that God is creative. And the rest of Genesis 1, which we're going to walk through, it helps testify to this fact. And I want to say, if you grew up in the church, Genesis 1 has often been used in a debate about science and theology. And and that's a valid thing, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. And sometimes I think that argument overshadows the bigger point that's being made in Genesis 1. Because Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. So God is a creator. Look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. We'll hit pause there for a second. The imagery given here is that the earth, it doesn't have form, that it's a place of chaos and desolation. It's dreadful. One person translated it. This, the earth at this point, it was a scary, ugly wasteland. So at the very beginning, 
It was just chaos and darkness, all kinds of crazy stuff, disorder. But then we're told, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters like a bird, like an eagle. The Spirit of God's over this darkness and this chaos. And what the author's doing here, he's trying to build a sense of anticipation for what's going to happen next. And we're told in verse 3, and God said, so God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. I don't know if you've ever been to a big concert before. I think at one time I went and saw you 2 in Chicago, sold out seven nights in a row. We went to see him, and the opening act wasn't very good because they rarely are, and you 2 was waiting. It's taken quite a while to to come on stage, and the auditorium was dark. People were starting to get rowdy. You know, they're spilling beer all over the place. They're screaming at each other because that's what people do at concerts. It was chaotic and desolate. It was dreadful. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. Concert right before, and then all of a sudden, at the very exact same time, the lights and the first strum of the guitar happened simultaneously, and everyone erupted in applause. And all of a sudden, the chaos and the disorder was transformed by beauty and order. God reveals in Job 38, you guys think I'm joking, Job 38, go read it. And God says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He says, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And so the vision we're given in the Bible is when God says, over the darkness and chaos and desolation, when he says, let there be light, and boom, the lights come on, the angels, these terrifying heavenly beings, erupt in a thunderous applause, celebrating what God has done. And God saw that the light was good, so he looked at what he created, and he said, that's good, it's beautiful, he separated light from darkness. You can almost see him. All right, we're going to split these two. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. To fast forward a little bit, on day two, God separates the water from the sky. And on day three, he separates the water from the dry land. So he's distinguishing and drawing lines, and he's bringing order to what was chaotic. At the end of day three, God's act of forming the earth was finished. On days four, five, and six, he then fills what was formed. And so on day four, you know, he separated the light from the dark. He, he creates the sun and the move. Day five, uh, which on day two, he had separated the sky from the water. He creates flying things and sea creatures. Day six, he creates land animals and people. The overall effect in Genesis 1 is that of an artist filling a canvas with tremendous diversity and harmony, and then he looks and declares it's not just good anymore, it is very good. Good is, it's wonderful. Very good is, I can't even improve on that. It's perfect. The account, the creation account ends in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So the creation narrative is telling us that God is an artist. And in particular, he's telling us two things about God as an artist. One, 
God is exceedingly generous in his creation. I mean, God, have you ever thought, like, if he wanted to, he could have created just food pellets. You know, a tree that just dropped pellets that we eat from. Or he could have created one kind of animal, which would hopefully be a cow, and one kind of plant, and just filled the earth with that. But he didn't. God created a world that was filled with incredible, over-the-top diversity. I mean, he was exceedingly generous in all of the strange and beautiful and bizarre and breathtaking things that he created. One of my hobbies in life is watching BBC nature documentaries. It's one of the things my kids are going to remember growing up. My dad loved David Attenborough. Uh, Like, I, I love him. And I love watching them because... They cause me to marvel at what God has created. And they they open my eyes to creatures I didn't even know exist and the tremendous diversity. God, he didn't just create cows. He created an aardvark and an octopus and a giraffe and a jellyfish and a nautilus and a narwhal. Those are real. I didn't know that until recently. (laughs) I thought they were mythological, because it's a unicorn in the sea. (laughs) And God spoke it into being. The best estimate is that there are 8.7 million species of animals in the world. Think about that. You know, in one of the documentaries, the new Blue Planet, they went under the ice and at the South Pole And they expected to find just a barren, chaotic, desolate wasteland because no one's ever been down there. And they got down and they turned on the lights and it was brimming with life. You see the generosity of God. He put life there knowing people weren't going to see it for thousands of years. Why would he do all of that? Because God is generous. He's overly generous. He's lavish. He's not utilitarian. He didn't just bring the bare necessities to our survival. You go to the plant world, the same thing. We don't have one tree. There's 60,000 different species of trees. There's 390,000 species of plants. All of it's supposed to tell us something, one, about God, that first, he's generous, and two, he's beautiful. Because he was generous... But in his generosity, he made a world that's beautiful. You know, Immanuel Kant said the the problem for atheists, I forget how to say it. He said the problem for atheists is that something is there when nothing should be. So he's saying the problem for atheists is that the universe exists. And I would go further. The real problem is not only does it exist, but it's beautiful. I mean, God could have created this world you know, in grayscale. He could have created the, the heavens to be something that was repulsive, that we would hide our eyes from because we didn't want to look at them or plants or animals. But everything he created, it's got, even when it's strange and bizarre, there's still a tremendous beauty to them. And this is telling us something about the God we worship. Because to say God is glorious and God is beautiful, that can be an abstraction. And God said, I don't want it to be an abstraction. I'm going to make an incredible world that I'm going to speak 
from the word of my mouth to help enlarge your imaginations as to what I must be like. Some of you, you might, you might be getting twitchy on this. Let me say this, Isaiah 6, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now what do they say next? The whole earth is full of his glory. Not just part of it. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. What the psalmist is saying here is it doesn't matter where you live. We all live under the sky and the sky testifies to something about God. It's pouring forth knowledge on us, the vastness and beauty and mystery and majesty of who God is. Last one, Romans 1.20, Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. And so in Paul's greatest theological treaty, he begins it by saying, if you look at the world, it's very clear what God is like, his nature, who he is, his very core, his power. Creation exists to teach us about the creator. And it all comes together in the goal when God created everything he created was that it would come together in this beautiful tapestry that would lead us to a place of wonder and ask, what must God be like? What must he be like? If you go contemplate the stars and the the billions of galaxies that are out there, how big must God be that he spoke that into existence? When you contemplate a beautiful landscape or a beautiful show and people who do stuff that brings you to tears, it's supposed to to cause you to ask if that's what the creation can do, what must the creator be like? This is why we all long for beauty. This is why when we experience profound beauty on the beach, in the woods, in the theater, at the arena, it's powerful. And sometimes we, like the angels, we shout for joy, typically at sporting events. I've never seen anyone in an art gallery just scream. (laughs) But you know what I do see people in art galleries do? They start tearing up, contemplating a painting. I read this quote by a, a pastor who said, whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, It is well to pay the closest attention. They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them. That when our eyes fill with tears because we've encountered beauty, it's because that beauty, it came from God. And it finds its origin in him. So God's made it known in creation Second thing, though, is because there's so much power in beauty, we can corrupt it and beauty can corrupt us. Something that can make you scream at the top of your lungs or make you break down crying, that's a powerful thing. And beauty is tremendously powerful. 
You go all the way back to Genesis 3, after God creates this wonderful creation, what was the original sin? Well, they ate the forbidden fruit. Why did they eat the forbidden fruit? Verse 6, chapter 3. We're told, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So the original sin was not, I'm going to rebel against God. The original sin was, that's beautiful, and I want it. Now, God said, don't take it. And Eve and Adam said, we're going to take it anyway. The original sin was, I want to I grab hold of the created beauty while neglecting the creator who is beautiful. That's the essence of sin. Romans 1.25, Paul makes the same point. He says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things, gave themselves, pursued above all else created things, rather than the creator who's forever to be blessed. See, that the great problem of mankind is that we love beauty, whether we use that word or not, and we pursue it with all we have, but we try to pursue the beauty apart from the beautiful one. You could say this, that, that the heart of sin is when people stopped asking, what must God be like? And instead, they said, this is a beautiful landscape. But they never, they never made the dot, connected the dots. This is the great sin. And this is why we've become so infatuated with created beauty that it's overshadowed for us the beauty of God. For a lot of you, you read David's statement where he's saying there's only one thing, only one thing I need, and that's to gaze upon the Lord's beauty, and you kind of yawn. Like, that doesn't sound all that intriguing. Gaze upon the Lord's beauty. We got a game to catch tonight that I've really been looking forward to. It's because we have a small view of God and because we've lost sight of the fact that every created thing that enraptures us and leads us to shout or cry, it's just, it's crumbs from the table of who God is. And yet we still pursue it and we take these good things and we pervert them and how we try to use them. You know, all sin is a perversion of something good. Another way to say it is all sin is a parasite. It, it latches onto a good host. And so some of you, this, this might be mind-blowing, but when God created the world, he looked at everything he made and he didn't say this is the good stuff and this is the bad stuff. He said it's all good. It's all good. Sin is taking a good thing that God made and perverting it, using it not how it's intended, using it in a way that dishonors the creator. Now, the problem when we do that is God and his wisdom, he created all these earthly beauties so that they would be fleeting and that they would never fully satisfy us. Every beauty we experience on earth, it's fleeting and it it never really satisfies. It stirs our desires, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. You know, that's why after seeing the sun set over the ocean, I've yet to meet the person who after seeing it says, well, I saw what I needed to see. Don't need to see that anymore. No, what what a lot of people do is after seeing it once, they spend the rest of their lives wondering, how can I get back here more often? And how can I buy a house so I can see this beauty all the time? 
because we feel that it's fleeting and we want to possess it and we can't possess beauty. Like as we try to possess it, it begins to die. The flower fades. Now, you know, we can, we can get surgery where we try to capture it. You know, in our own bodies, it's not going to work. Sometimes we try to capture it with our phones, you know, and you can't capture it. The sun's setting, it's this beautiful landscape. And instead of you experiencing it, you take a picture and then you post it online and everyone's like, yawn, right? Because a photo can't capture the wonder of creation. And so it doesn't satisfy, it's fleeting, and yet we still pursue it. And even though it's never fully satisfying, it is satisfying, not fully satisfying, and even though it's fleeting, we still chase it, and there's this law of diminishing returns in our pursuit of beauty. You know, we can't simply enjoy a good vacation without wondering what our next vacation will be that tops it. If we have a good meal, we wonder what the the next meal is, it's going to be even better. We see a good movie or a good show, we start thinking about the next one. And on and on it goes. We're like addicts. And sometimes our, our addiction is entertainment. Sometimes it's shopping, food. Sometimes in our pursuit of beauty, we, we turn to alcohol or drugs, pornography, adultery, infidelity. And someone said... A while back, he said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I would adapt it to our day. Every man and woman that under the shroud of darkness gets on the internet to go to places they don't want anyone else to know they go to, at the very bottom of that, they're still looking for God. They're just looking in the wrong place. They're trying to find beauty that's never going to satisfy them. So God created the world like this so it would cause us to look to him. Now, because beauty is so powerful and because we've corrupted it and it has the power because of sin, sin corrupts it in us, some people think the response to the beautiful in the world, and this is where many Christians have been, especially in the last hundred years, is let's kill our desire for beauty. Let's just, you know, snuff it out. But that's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. Christianity is never about eliminating your desire. And if you kill the desire you have for beauty, you're killing your desire for the beautiful one. How are you going to love God if you're a person who has no desire? And so what we need, we don't need for the desire to go away. We don't need to eliminate the desire for beauty. We need to be restored to a right relationship with it. And the wonder of the gospel is that even though we abandoned the creator for his creation, he hasn't abandoned us. And that the source of all beauty took on flesh and became beauty personified in Jesus Christ. And even though his physical appearance, Isaiah tells us, he had no beauty or majesty about him that should draw us to him, people were drawn to him all the time. So Isaiah says he wasn't an attractive person. If you're here and you don't feel like you're an attractive person, you're in good company. Jesus wasn't an attractive person. And yet, what do you see? People were attracted to him all the time. The crowds are always around him. Why? Because he had a beauty that transcends just mere looks. And Jesus Christ, he embodied the beauty of God. You know, 
One of the ways you could define beauty is excellence, diversity, and harmony. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. That all of these things come together in him. He's glorious and he's humble. He's just and he's merciful. He's majestic and he's meek. He's all powerful, but he's, he's gentle. He's all good, but then he's made sin for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, going back to Genesis 1, for that God made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the beauty of God and the face of Christ. See, Jesus didn't come to stomp out our desires for beauty. He came to reveal that the source of our longing is God and that the Spirit shines in our heart and we see that Jesus is beautiful and that while his death on one level was brutal, on another level, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful act in the history of the world. It's God's kind of last word, his final word of reconciliation and redemption, of wholeness, of relationships coming together, of things that were disintegrating coming back and being healed. And I submit to you that as Christians, as followers and worshipers who by the Spirit have beheld the beauty of God in the face of Christ, we should be able to enjoy the beauties of this world better than anyone. Because we're no longer looking for them to satisfy our deepest longings. Jesus Christ, even though we corrupted it, he redeemed us. And the last one, how does this actually play out? What does it mean for beauty to be of value in the church? Number one, it means that we as a church, we celebrate it. We rejoice in beauty. And we rejoice and we recognize this as countercultural from the kind of stream of Christianity that we swim in. Because there are a lot of people that have a lot of suspicion towards beauty, enjoyment. A lot of people have a lot of suspicion towards liking things in the world or loving things in the world. And the suspicion arises out of a misguided teaching. It's verses like 1 John 2.15, where John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I remember reading that when I was 15 and thinking, I need to hate this stuff. All of the enjoyment, the pleasure, all of the beautiful things I've seen, don't love it, hate it, because that means I don't love God. My problem and the problem for so many of us and the problem when people teach that is they rip that verse out of context and they don't read the very next sentence where John says, continues, for everything in the world. Okay, so he's going to define it. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has done comes not from the Father but from the world. You keep reading, you recognize world. It's not talking about creation. It's talking about the collective sin of humanity. Seen in a misguided attempt to keep ourselves unspoiled by the world, which we should keep ourselves unspoiled by the collective sin of humanity. But oftentimes what we do is we end up falling into this unbiblical thinking, this really bad thinking that the spiritual is good and the material is bad. And that all the material stuff, it's going to burn, it's worthless. Who cares about that? All we care about is the spiritual. And that's just not in accord with the teaching of Scripture. It teaches us to not delight in creation. God delights in creation. 
He delighted in him before the fall. The psalmist tells us he delights in it after the fall. The psalmist would delight in creation. They would celebrate it. We should too. 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul says, God's richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. God's given us stuff that we should enjoy, we should celebrate. And the reason I want to drive this home, some of you, you have no problem celebrating and enjoying. But a lot of times what I see in the church is you have Christians who their faith is here. This is my faith, what I believe, my convictions, all of my obligations. And then you have all the stuff you love over here. And this is the stuff that you think about, you research on the internet, you hide money from your spouse so you can buy more of. You got the stuff you love, you got your faith, and never the twain shall meet, right? When what should happen is we as believers should be able to say, I love these things. Why do I love them? And maybe it's sin. Usually I would say it's not. Sin's a perversion of the good. What's the good in this? And make the connection. That when you experience something good, you have a great meal, a great vacation, a great night with friends. It would lead you in worship and wonder to say, what must God be like? And when you ask that question, you don't fall into the trap of idolatry. You don't corrupt the beauty. You receive it rightly. I'm convinced eating a great meal, laughing with your friends, going on a great vacation, seeing a tremendous show, it stirs things in you. And I think that the best thing we can do as believers is say, what must God be like that he created these things? You have a great meal. What must God be like? He could have just made chicken breast, you know, and broccoli. And that's all you ever eat. What must he be like that he created such diversity? How kind is God that he gives us such wonderful things to enjoy? We shouldn't deny the fact that we're embodied beings. God, contrary to what many people think, did not create us as brains on a stick. He created us as embodied beings with five senses. And those senses stir and shape our affections and our affections drive everything else in our lives. And so cultivate your affection for the beautiful, but make the connection that the beautiful comes from the creator. Celebrate beauty, number two, we're a church that also cultivates beauty. You know, another consequence of Adopting this, the spiritual's good, the material's bad, as we exchange a truly biblical vision for the world, which is the, the flourishing and thriving of all things, we trade that in for utilitarianism. Where anyone or anything that doesn't improve the bottom line today is dispensable and disposable. We view it all as just bad or as something for us to abuse, we eventually neglect and abuse creation. And, you know, this is why that there have been a lot of Christians over the years who have supported things in the world that have been very abusive to God's creation. Whether it's strip mining or overfishing, it doesn't matter. You just have a utilitarian approach. Just pillage it all for whatever we can get as soon as we can get it. Sadly, a lot of those people were Christians because the Christians associated themselves, you know, with the right, the religious right. Now, the sin on the left is they worship creation. That's where it goes to the extreme. You worship creation. 
The sin on the right is you abuse creation. The biblical call is you don't worship it and you don't abuse it, you steward it. This was the call that came before the fall. Where God said, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it. God gave this vision. He's like, I've started it. Go build it out. You know, my kids love Minecraft. I'm not very good at Minecraft. The controls are not intuitive to me at all. But one day on a snow day, I was like, let's build a world. And so uh, I might not be as good with the controls, but I've seen more things in life and my imagination's bigger. And so I built this house with a fence and a stream and the kids loved it like this is awesome and then I gave them the controller and I said you take it from here and that's in essence what God did in Genesis 2 it's like I'm going to start the thing and it's going to stir your imagination you go and cultivate you build it out as you fill the earth the garden's got to get bigger you go build it and make it bigger you pay attention to the details And so we go forth, embracing that call to stewardship, recognizing there's a big difference between being stingy and being a good steward. And part of that difference is as stewards, we don't just think in utilitarian terms. We recognize that while beauty, yeah, it might not be essential to survival, bare survival, it's certainly essential to human flourishing, which is what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what this means is we celebrate artistic endeavors, And some people will think, well, that's kind of a progressive stance. It's actually not. Like, this is what the church has done throughout history. You know, many people don't realize that when you think of the great works of art from Western civilization, the overwhelming majority of them were either done by Christians or paid for by Christians or both. Like 90-something percent of them. The church has always placed a value on beauty, not because absolutely useful or not because it's essential to survival but because it's essential to flourishing and so we want to be a church that stewards beauty we want to bring order to disorder beauty to chaos wherever we find it art in the park is a great example of this it's a way for us to testify to the watching world the big question i want you to ask because some of you are saying i'm not artistic you don't need to be you can still be a steward without being overly artistic You are creative because we're all created in the image of God, the creator. It just might look differently. And so the question is, how can you work where you are with what you have to reveal the beauty of God? How can you steward? You know, because this is the last sermon in the series, I wanted to say that the reason we love these values of truth, goodness, and beauty is because they're not separate and unrelated, but they're all interrelated. The good... And the true is also the beautiful. And we want to hold all of them together. And so if you only came two weeks ago when I preached on truth, someone would say, what's Sojourn about? You would say, they're a big Bible church, and they're big on the truth and proclaiming the truth, even even when it's uncomfortable, even when it goes against culture. If you only came last week, you would say, what's Sojourn about? And you would say, it's about doing good works and being good people and serving the community and serving one another. If you came only this week, You'd say, what's Sojourn about? They're about beauty and being cultivators and seeking flourishing. When you hold them all together, you're starting to get to the vision we have for who we are supposed to be as a church. Grounded in truth, walking in goodness. And when those come together, beauty emerges. 
and in a world that's skeptical of Christians and Christianity, our commitment to these things, these three things, holding them together, I think it provides a compelling vision for the Christian faith, which is ultimately a compelling vision for what it means to be human. And it gets me excited about what we can do. Now, I want to end with this quote. I didn't know where else to put it, so I'll end with it. It was by an unknown Anglican preacher from about 100 years ago. He said this, The fact is that God is beautiful and the church is hiding this. The fact is that God is beautiful and the church is hiding this. My prayer for us is we would be a church that doesn't hide that fact. As we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. We celebrate the brutal but also most beautiful act in history. Jesus Christ performed for us to reconcile us to God and in reconciling us to God, to reconcile us to his creation. And so as we come to the table, it's a chance where we can confess sin. Some of us, we have, we've been, been trying to enjoy the creation apart from the creator. This is a place to repent, to turn from that, to acknowledge it. Others of you, this is a chance for you to, to maybe be set free for some really bad thinking you've had for a long time. That desires you have for beauty are, are rotten to the core because they're not. God created and wired you in that way. Some of you here, you're not believers, and my encouragement to you is to entrust your life to Jesus Christ who, who put the desire in you and fulfills the desire. I'm gonna pray. If you're a believer, we encourage you to come and take part.